Hello, hello, and welcome back to All Plotted Out, a My Little Pony Friendship is Magic podcast, where we're working our way through the later seasons of the show, episode by episode. Because, you know, I think they deserve it. My name is Pornhart, that's P-A-W-N Hart, I thank you very much. And today we're on to episodes 7 and 8 of the final season, She's All Yak and Frenemies. We're starting to get the uh, last writing credits of a bunch of uh, established writers on the show. And today it's the turn of Brian Holfeld. Married to writer and script editor Nicole DeBuck, Brian made his debut for the show with Surf and or Turf, which nearly won the Thing Award for Nice What's It, and of which, I must confess, I was not much of a fan. He then returned later in Season 8 with The Heartswarming Club, which I loved possible draw with best gift ever uh, in terms of the best seasonal episode the show ever did and a fantastic showcase for the young six who well certainly if this episode today is anything to go by brian seems to write for pretty well the main six mm, we'll come to that she's all yak was first broadcast may the 11th 2019 and gets a fine midi midi mid mid seven out of ten on imdb where the synopsis reads when Sandbar asks Yona to a pony dance, she goes to Rarity and her friends for a makeover in appearance and personality. So yes, it's My Fair Lady. Or, as the title alludes to, the kind of trendy 90s remake, She's All That. Certainly not fresh ground for an animated show. Um, but that's not necessarily a problem, you know? I don't have a fundamental issue at all with a cliched story or a, a robust war horse moral that is well told. So yeah, my appraisal on this will by and large rest on how well it's put across. As part of my general new initiative to actually try and uh, give an indication of my feelings before I actually go into the weeds with an episode, I don't like this as much as Hearts Warming Club, um, but I do like it more than Surf and or Turf. Uh, I think it starts well. I think it ends well. There are issues with it. And there was one point where it was threatening to drop into a similar grading bracket as Surf and or Turf. But it was somewhat redeemed. I'm going to start with the, uh, the, the good stuff. I love how much, and I've mentioned this before, the show staff have glommed on to Yona as this representation of an outsider trying to find her way in a place that sometimes seems unfriendly to her or doesn't really understand where she's coming from. I mean, you, you could regard her clumsiness as actually just being a, a metaphor for this rather than, ha-ha, she's just not seemingly built for this environment. Yet, pleasingly, she has proven to be the, the backbone of the young six, reminding them of the meaning of the Tree of Friendship in the last episode, and trying to force the, the eventual moral early, um, but ultimately getting rejected by the others. So they had to come about it the hard way, and the considerably better than I was expecting between a rock hoof and a hard place showed her finding a purpose as an outsider, and thereby giving rock hoof a reason to continue, because he was much the same. God love Yona, she's a great character. Something I love about the, the opening of this episode and the way it is concluded 
is that it doesn't just deal with surface level prejudice and surface level difference, but it deals with the far more pervasive, insidious, and honestly probably more difficult to counter, unconscious cultural prejudice, sort of the side products of it. So while with the best of intentions, you know, Twilight is like, no, this isn't the uh, Fetlock fate. It's, it's fat. You, you got that wrong. And it's now, you know, very, very open to all species, cosmopolitan in intention. Yona is still a little suspicious of this, you know, with, with perhaps good reason, because she looks around and she points out to Sandbar, you know, look at the the trophy. It's got two ponies together on it. Look at these posters that are the ponies. We all want to be accepted, whether we acknowledge it or not, I think. And especially when you're young and impressionable, the fear of not fitting in is all the more fatal seeming. It takes a while for you to learn that there are intangible things that aren't just superficial opinions or aesthetics that are why people gravitate towards you. And I love at the end how the, the main six apologetically do a <laughs> Marge Simpson statue with the, uh, the dance award and actually just add a load of fluffy faux yak hair to one of the pony figures on the trophy <laughs> before they give it to her. No comment is made of this. I just love it as, a, as a, both a visual gag and as a nice sort of closing of this arc that... Yeah, there needs to be more actual representation as well as people saying, oh, no, everyone's welcome. This is a really good episode for Yona uh, in terms of making her a faceted character too. You get to see a variety of different emotional states for her. And she once more reveals herself to be a far more complicated character than people give her credit for. Well, it's never explicitly stated as well, the... Uh, beyond friendship between her and Sandbar is, is very cute. And yeah, speaking of Sandbar, once more, as I implied earlier, the, 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 the young six um, are, are really well written in this. Some of the best bits of the episode are either the, the banter between them or just the exchanges between um, Yona and Sandbar towards the end, which go a quite a long way towards um, mitigating... <laughs> Some of the mm, the draggier midsection. We'll get to that. By this point as well, I don't know if it's just the way Brian writes for them, but, you know, while well, there's still, as I say, that edge of bants to it, they, they seem to get on a little better overall. They, they, they've softened. They don't, they don't have to put on quite as much of a front. But it does kind of come down to this. This episode was always going to be ahead of Surf and or Turf, in my eyes, because it flows better as a story, as, well, yeah, by the numbers, as a lot of it is. Um, it, it's told more visually. It doesn't just lecture you, <laughs> as the other episode did, where it was like, oh, here is one character that we've posed just to express one part of this issue. Here is another character that we have posed to express the other part of the issue. And basically, let's all just talk and talk as we walk through some pretty backgrounds. Great drama. Love it. But this one, it's, it's entertaining enough throughout. It's, it's got a fair role to it, a nice arc, and some good use of montages again. And the montage of her getting better at the tasks that she's uh, trying to warp herself into it is nicely satisfying. And it does end with that 
super cute scene with her multitasking them and just obviously getting better at them while her tutors, her ostensible tutors, have passed out with exhaustion. It's it's lovely <laughs> with her going to the mirror and then back to the sort of twister dance. Yeah, my fair lady, it's my fair lady. Um, that's basically it. But there are kind of one of two ways that this story can go, which is having mastered the arts of pretension that are seen as necessary to fit in or necessary to attract somebody. In this case, it's actually both, although the second one is uh, rather more an undercurrent that admittedly the animators turn into a blushing overcurrent. But anyway, the subject can either fully embrace the changes so it becomes second nature, but their suitor finds them off-putting. And therefore, it's realised that, oh, no, the things that made you special have been gone with the transformation. loody doody doo It isn't you, blah de blah I mean, I say, my fair lady, this actually goes all the way back to the taming of the shrew. It's uh, one, of, one of the oldest plots going, interestingly. The other direction is that they can't help but be themselves. And, you know, they, they screw up and it all falls apart. And then, basically coming to the same denouement, the object of their affection says oh well no you didn't have to try for me uh i liked you all along and this is great so it does end up in the same place but um i often think it's a little more interesting if they go for the former but that can be a little bit sadder because the two actually have to kind of break apart for any progress to be made and I don't even think they have the time time for that kind of third act uh, in an episode like this. Uh, so fair dues. But yeah, this one ultimately goes for the, the second option, which is they, they get to a certain point, but then the, the masquerade collapses because they've got to be themselves. And that was fine to begin with. I do think that it is dealt with well here that proves that she is capable of doing all these things. She's not just a klutz... She has to really do figurative backflips to try and make this stuff work, but she eventually does. And the things she has to master are proven to be quite difficult, uh, fundamentally, especially for someone of her build, <laughs> in a lot of cases. But yeah, enough pussyfooting around the main issue. In the middle, we have a very contrived retelling of the Taming of the Shrew, She's All That, Hotty and the Knotty, My Fair Lady story. It's not, not there aren't surprises here, and it, it notes it. You know, it's not it's not pretending that it's anything new. I mean, Rarity openly paraphrases My Fair Lady with the. Oh, I think she's got it. They know, they know, and that's that's fine. What isn't so fine <laughs> is that once more, this is an episode where somebody is so fixated on telling a specific story and having a specific outcome that a lot of the characters are posed unnaturally in order to tell that story. I mean, I can see why these conclusions were come to. You know, Rainbow Dash being good at dancing. Yeah, that, that makes sense. You know, again, I'm, I'm not, I'm never too, you know, I'm never too bothered about the roles changing round as long as they can make some sort of semblance of sense with that character even if it's to subvert something but when you purely have to draw on the most unpleasant aspects of a character in order to tell a story um it is a bit off-putting and 
while the whole of the main six are just awful in this episode in terms of the they all make the same mistake and it's a crucial one and it's one that's quite alarming given the characters involved basically they assume that she needs to fit in and are just openly disparaging of of differences to a degree unconsciously they think they're trying to help her but they're doing a lot of damage here and to its credit that is acknowledged at the end it's another saving grace the episode doesn't try and reach a compromise between two viewpoints. Basically, Raymond Dushin is like, we were awful. We behaved awfully. And my goodness, we're so sorry. But for all six of them to act in such an uncharacteristically callous and narrow-minded way is a little bit of a stretch. But rarity. Oh, my goodness. This is the worst kind of misreading of rarity i think this sort of reactionary snob who's more interested in propriety and doing things in the traditional way and yeah you could say well pornhart you didn't have this issue with trixie and all bottled up or with discord in a matter of principles and no i didn't and maybe there is a degree of hypocrisy to that but i feel in those cases it's like there was just a slight tweak with with trixie in part because I think you're viewing it in All Bottled Up from Starlight's perspective. And it is important to see why she gets pushed over the edge. It's just a lot of little things. It's almost like Trixie's depiction doesn't need to be realistic in that sense. Because it's somebody trying to keep their cool who is picking out all of these things and magnifying them. If you want to read it in that way. I don't have any issue with the way Trixie's portrayed in that episode. Although I can understand why on a surface level... People would think, wow, for Trixie, this is, even for her, beyond arrogance and insensitivity. But in terms of um, discord in a matter of principles, I think it's probably less, actually, that people have a problem with, with discord than with Starlight's response to him, which is a bit contrived. It's like, oh, thank you, discord, for being such a, a privileged child. You've really taught me a lesson. I don't think discord's actual depiction through the episode is particularly out of character he's done far worse it's just maybe a little more consistent through the episode but yeah anyway i am flying way off course who'd have thunk it huh yet when i first started watching the show you know when i first saw those youtube rips of the first season back in the heady <laughs> pre-brexit pre-covid pre-trump pre-me too pre-Black Lives Matter days of 2011. Which might as well be the 1950s now. <laughs> I pretty much thought I wasn't going to like Rarity. Because she seemed to be this judgmental, aloof snob. Lots of airs and graces. But no hint yet that there was a, any sort of insecurity beneath that. She seemed like a, an awful fashion caricature. But... And I've said this about a trillion times. You, some of you might know where I'm going with this. When it comes to suit for success, you kind of recontextualise the character. You realise why she was doing what she was doing. And going forward, in the episodes where I, I feel she's written a bit more understandingly and a bit better, there is this basis of her wanting to bring out the best in other people through what they wear, through the way they appear. And she has myriad times stood back from her own aesthetic sense 
and allowed others in to provide a second voice, to actually provide balance, such as in the kind of underrated Honest Apple. Here, though, it's like, oh, look at Rarity. Isn't she a reactionary art snob? She basically comes off like some sort of stern Victorian governess or something. (laughs) Actually, no, governess isn't quite high up enough for this. Beyond that, it's an episode that doesn't really have any time for what she does. It obviously doesn't really see much value in it. So instead of illustrating her attention to detail or shaping what she does to the pony she's making the dresses for, she fundamentally is just not interested in what Yona thinks. Yona like brown earth tones. They're so (laughs) earthy, aren't they? And And it has an unpleasant undertone to it as well. So she represents the worst aspects of Eurocentric snobbery, if you will. And there is no light and shade to it. She does one thing in this episode consistently, and she's deeply unpleasant with it. And I think what makes this worse than Trixie's depiction and Discord's depiction that I mentioned before is that she's she's a tutor. She is, in theory, teaching and guiding this young person. And the lesson is horrid. And yeah, the rest of the main six are just basically used in a similar way to a lesser extent. And it feels a bit like, oh, well, we've, we've got to have each of the characters doing something. So I don't know, maybe Fluttershy's good at dancing or whatever. You know, I've seen her dance in something before, I think. Twilight is just an announcer, which is fine. It makes sense for uh, Applejack and Pinkie Pie to be the ones that are about the food bit. Both keep bakers, but let's be honest here, Pinky would try Yona's rather unappetising looking food. She would give it a go. Nothing has stopped her doing that before. She has always embraced difference. Some of the things that Pinkie Pie has put in her more previously make this look like tart au chocolat. So yeah, the main six, written badly, especially rarity. It's just a Pretty much one note contrivance, the mid part of this episode, that just takes too many liberties to tell a very obvious story. Can't you use some other characters to do it? It's weird. This episode feels like how I think people assume season eight is. If season eight were like this episode, I would get a lot more of the criticism. Because this represents the main six contrived into teaching roles and just being bad at it without that being seen as a problem by the show more than any of the season eight episodes itself. I mean, yeah, it was fundamentally a contrivance. But as I've said before, I think that once you get over the the very quick fire, oh, let's start a school. Oh, you're all teachers thing. I think it was a necessary shakeup and I think they did really good things with it. But it makes me realise that I don't think Brian Holfeld is too familiar with the main six or is too interested in them, really. And I've had no issue with there being more episodes where the main six are sidelined or, you know, I think that's just a natural way of growth if you've got other good characters. And this show has enough really good sort of secondary characters to carry episodes on their own. (laughs) There might be one coming up that proves this. But if you are going to include them, Don't treat them like one-note signposts 
then yeah, it's it's just not my place to second guess the writers for this or tell people how to make the show. <laughs> Especially since I don't know the circumstances that go into it or the rewrites or the, the politics or anything that happens in making these. But speaking of a matter of principles again, it would have been cool if they'd used more outsider-ish characters who actually try and shape her in this way. I mean, it would probably just seem less unpleasant and slightly more understandable uh, in that way. Because in that episode, we have Trixie teaching... We have Iron Will teaching, we have Cranky Doodle Donkey, and these are the kind of characters that could actually either misunderstand from the outside in uh, pony behaviour, or just be quite desperate to fit in themselves and so contrive things. So, yeah, I, I just... It's a shame. Stray observations? This sounds very pedantic. And it is, I'm not going to lie. There's some strange sound mixing and editing in this episode i don't know whether it was just the version i was listening to makes me realize how wonderful the building of the sound world around the characters is usually that you just you know you always have a sense of space of where the characters are Uh, it all just seems very smooth and it organically works with the animation and the setting there are a couple of examples here where the sound sounds like it's not perhaps coming quite from the right place This is the only example, actually, I can think of where there is some obvious and really strange editing going on near the beginning. When Rarity is stumbling over her explanation when she first sees Yona, uh, it does sound like there's been a bit of chopping and screwing with the... (laughs) I mean, what is it? This podcast or something? (laughs) Like blocking the flow, stopping me from what I'm doing. But it's strange because it sort of throws you off the gag because it's like that. What did she say? It's a bit weird. I'm just being a pernickety troll here. I can't help but notice the possible accidental <laughs> connotations of rarity saying that the outfit that Yoda's trying on is too furry. And I'm like, ah, oh, in this fandom, it might be a little bit too late for that. <laughs> Oh, Lel. Oh, yeah. Be careful what you wish for. I praised the song in The Sounds of Silence for having a reprise at the end, which is a really nice book-ending thing. But I realised part of the reason I was praising it is it's a really good song. This one isn't so much. Uh, and unfortunately, there's another thing it has in common with Surf and or Turf, which is a very lyrically clumsy song that almost steps on how awkward and contrived a lot of the episode is by just focusing in on on its negative aspect i mean it's, it is pretty much just a straight lift uh, in terms of style from from my fair lady they're doing that thing every cartoon i think by law has to do this at some point <laughs> remember even sonic boom did an episode like this i'll teach you to be a lady a lady yeah that's the thing that holds garbage right it's not like the song adds anything to the story <laughs> Didn't say anything about the characters either, other than reinforcing the fact that they're all behaving deplorably. <laughs> the outfit and the look that Rarity creates for Yona is kind of gross, especially with that hair. Also, you know, green and purple. Are you, you unconsciously channeling something about Spike here, Rarity? Or are you just conveniently incompetent for the, the sake of this story? Yeah, I think it's probably the latter, unfortunately. In Suited for Success, the costumes were actually beautiful. 
the way they were tied into the background, the way they presented, it was beautiful to look at. A lot of consideration had been given to making these flattering and representative of the characters who were wearing them. Even just as physical forms of, of colour and shape, they worked. This doesn't. I mean, admittedly, yeah, they're probably trying to emphasise the fact that she is trying to fit in and it doesn't work. But why has Rarity done this? Oh, yeah, because my fair lady did it. And to put a pin in this issue, the dresses that Rarity looks through, they're, they're the assets from Suited for Success. Are, are they trying to do a meta joke here? Are they commenting on how out of character this is? Probably not. They're probably just assets that they like that were available. But still, it just treads on itself, in a way. Spike's good. <laughs> Spike's always good, though. It's nice just to have him in multiple roles. And he makes such a natural, cocky DJ. He's, he's done it before. Especially, like, the dead mouse referencing hat. Which is, again, once more, him disguising himself as himself. Ah, there's something so childishly insular and charmingly awkward about that but he, he does a he does a good job spike always does a good job well nearly always you know the exceptions i, I do feel though that they kind of missed a comedic opportunity for spike to put on the wrong wrong record the pony cotillion I mean, actually, that might have been a backdoor way of showing that what Yona was doing was sort of a bit alien to her and was a pretension that she was actually trying to fit two disparate elements together. So, for example, she'd start doing the pony prance or whatever it's called to uh, to the cotillion. But nah, just as a throwaway gag, I think I would have liked that. The rest of the music, it serves its function. You know, it's like mild rock and roll and a sort of very formal cotillion. I mean, how old is this? Who would be doing a cotillion at a pony event? I mean, I know they've done the waltzes and things, but cotillion? Might as well do a gavotte. The pony cotillion! But anyway, my original point, Yona's track is the best one, and I think... There is a point to this. I think that's quite deliberate. And it is quite a cool fusion between what might be described as sort of Eastern European melody, very broadly, with like house beats. It's almost got a little bit of a system of a down vibe. Oh, imagine if they've got Serge Tankian to do a guest voice. Every pound is going to the party, have a real good time. La 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 la. Just be honest with them. I'm sure they'll understand where you're coming from. So, yeah. It's contrived. The main six writing is pretty poor. But it hits the beats where it needs to. And it's pretty consistently enjoyable. So, yeah, I, I am left with a more positive view on this, even though I know that it sags in the middle and the song is a bit poor. So, hey, am I going to recommend this to someone? No. Is it one of the better uh, Young Six episodes? No. Is it one of the better school-based episodes? Definitely not. But it's entertaining enough. Yona is great, in it? The owner and sandbar exchanges are great. And yeah, the, 
the young six kind of save it and so do some of the bracketing insights really i do love the acknowledgement of unconscious prejudice and how that can affect somebody who feels like an outsider already so yeah <sighs> It's not over yet. Ah, Frenemies. An episode that in the the grand tapestry of the show is both quite atypical and at the same time really fundamental. And, spoiler, it's also really good. Thanks. Good night. Frenemies was first broadcast May the 18th, 2019 and was written by Michael Vogel. Vogel is one of the big writing players in the show by this point. Uh, He made a significant debut in season six, starting with some admittedly, you know, solid, if not amazing episodes. Um, Heartwarming tale, spice up your life, every little thing she does, but then really kind of hit his stride with the uh, co-written to wear and back again season six finale, which is fabulous. Just fabulous. Most recently, he uh, contributed the rather excellent double-length holiday special, Best Gift Ever. And prior to that, did one of my favourites of the last season, uh, What Lies Beneath, which is possibly the best Young Six episode. Uh, I don't know, there's competition. But yeah, he's a really good writer. He's he's in the top tier now. And he kind of keeps getting more and more significant assignments in terms of building up to the grand finale. And Frenemies is certainly no exception. None of the main cast are in this episode at all. There's a visual joke where one of the characters does an impression of Twilight Sparkle, but that's as close as you get. Anyway, getting ahead of myself. The episode gets a pretty chuffed, pretty chuffed 88 Aggregate score on IMDb, where the synopsis reads, Grogar sends his legion of doom. The best that the World Wrestling Federation has to offer! On a mission to become allies. But his plan works too well, and they almost become friends. Now, yeah, I I mentioned before that this is both atypical and archetypal, in a way. And I think this, first and foremost, illustrates why the final season works so well as a finale. Now, there's so many shows that don't really know what to do with the final season other than treat it as a a goodbye to the characters and step up the stakes. But they often do this inorganically by just having another big bad. It's just bigger and badder than the previous big bad. It was bigger and badder than the preceding big bad, which is always, you know, it's it's the Dragon Ball Z effect. It's always diminishing returns. And take that from someone who's never seen Dragon Ball Z. But here, not only do they do the all of the big bads combining together thing, which is naturally going to be a little more intimidating, they use the premise of the show to make them intrinsically more dangerous than ever before. In this show, it's been proven time and time again that friendship conquers all. Alliance, the bond, is actually what creates power, rather than the abilities of the individuals. And as a result, all of the individual villains that have preceded this union have failed because they don't see the power in alliances. They don't see the the magic of friendship. And here, 
there is the distinct possibility that the most devastating villains the show has ever seen, the ones who came the closest, are now actually kind of making friends with each other. Or at the very least, forging an alliance. And so they are threatening the most powerful force in this universe with itself. It's just a great way of using the show's premise. And the perfect way to create a final battle. Adding to the sense of danger posed by these characters is they have a personal stake in this. But beyond that, they know the characters they're up against. There's a fantastic scene where they start to bond with each other by mocking Twilight. And they are as aware of the main six of what Twilight's potential weaknesses are. That her anxiety and need for sort of control and perfectionism can be a, an Achilles heel. But once more, leave it to Chrysalis to, <laughs> to reject the idea of friendship. It would be the ultimate defeat for her. And I love how close they come in the middle of this episode to actually being like, ah, oh, friendship is magic, you guys. And then Chrysalis lets out this sort of bestial scream like, No! I'm not going to be compromised by this. And so they basically just have to pretend it's an alliance. I love that. It's a strange episode in a lot of ways because it's, it does serve the purpose of setting up the finale. It's entirely its own thing as a result. The main six aren't in it. The other characters aren't in it. But where the intro kind of felt like a, a sort of overblown excuse to get the ball rolling, where it was just, oh, well, Sombra is rubbish. Let's watch him fail. Oh, what do you know? At least he did it more campily than before, I guess. But here, in the course of just one episode, there is a lot more genuine risk and drama, oddly. Because there is this open... Like, it can go either way. If they actually embrace the ideas of friendship, then the main six have won already. If, however, they use friendship as a tool, take the superficial strengths of it in a very clinical, transactional way, they can create a similar wall of power, albeit one that's not really got a core to it. And so that is that's implied, incredibly dangerous to the main six. And I love how this episode is laid out. There's the, the opening song, which seems to actually have them embracing this idea very quickly, but through the course of the song, it reveals that none of them actually understand what working as a team is. And it ends up with them all saying like, yeah, but it will be my team. This team will work together by doing what I say. And the song and the choreography falls apart as a result. It's a great song with some of the snappiest, most clever lyrics the show has done. And the, the way it's choreographed, even down to the, the spotlighting and the, the use of the, the pony voodoo dolls. It's excellent. And yeah, like nearly all of the better songs in the show, it shows a journey of character development through the song and highlights something fundamental, which is the irony that this idea of friendship is being cultivated by people who don't get it. They never have. 
But this is, you know, we're up to about the six or seven minute mark. And when this all falls apart, they are sent on an errand that is supposed to force them to work together. And they all just try their own way. It's like, look, this, this friendship thing is garbage. I can do this on my own. Of course they all fail. Except for uh, T-Rex, who actually doesn't even try. He's like, no, I'll just going to wait for you to come back and then steal it, basically. It's a pretty good idea. Um, <laughs> but it proves that they all do need to work together to do it. And there's so much going on in that scene where they have to get into the cave. The tense crux point of the episode isn't some precipice or, or piece of circumstantial drama. It's Chrysalis having to trust T-Rex. And that's where the heart of the drama is. And it's wonderful that because none of the rest of the characters are in this, you start feeling sympathy for them. You really want her to be right in her assumption, in believing in this. But it doesn't stay there too long. Because, yeah, while she does give up the power to T-Rex, who does use his power to allow Cozy Glow to break in and get the bell and bring it back, Chrysalis, although she's weak on the ground, and, and basically, they obviously need Cozy Glow in this moment. There's still this need for control and power, so the prone Chrysalis is like, you know, if she doesn't come back, is that, is that, is that so bad? You could just, like, close that little window you've got there? It's like the, the old proverb of the scorpion. They can't help themselves. <laughs> but they do it. And against his instincts, T-Rex does relinquish his power to Chrysalis. They do get the bell, and they decide to work together against Grogar. Like it or not, they can understand the value of an accord now. And this could be very, very dangerous. The voice acting in this, absolutely top draw. Mark Akerson as T-Rex and Sonny Westbrook as Cozy. Very good. But Kathleen Barr. I mean, she plays Trixie and this this might be her best performance in the show. But she's given some real spitting dialogue to chew on there. She's such a good villain. I mean, they, they take a few risks with, with the um, the kids' show strictures in this to, to actually give us some real spiteful stuff to say. The magic of friendship is like a disease. And when she just roars out that she thinks that Starlight Glimmer is a sow, that's a pretty nasty and primal insult to throw at anyone. Because they couldn't put she's a cow or something. Which admittedly is probably a bit more of a, of a UK thing, but, but it has that bite to it. And the way the three of these just show their individual motivations, their weaknesses, their strengths, and their different approaches in this, it's great to watch. Oh, and poor Rusty Bucket as the foil. He's got a great design, by the way. Just be honest with them. I'm sure they'll understand where you're coming from. So, yeah. I've not got a huge amount else to say about this episode. I've not even mentioned just how gorgeous to look at it is in terms of the animations the storyboarding the framing of the three characters throughout but i realize I've, I've really not got many criticisms of this it works well as an entertaining episode in its own right it's an excellent and necessary building block for the finale i was gonna give this a, a nine but that that actually feels like a little bit of a low ball because, well, there is still the edge of it being a functional episode that's building something else up. So it, 
never quite stands alone like a lot of tens do. It's, it's really good. <laughs> so yeah, um, um, it's a 9.5. Excellent. Got any problems, troubles, conundrums, or any other sort of issues, major or minor, that I, as a good friend, could help you solve? So, anything to say? Any pony-related stuff to get off your chest? Then you can always contact me. All plotted out at Outlook.com. All lowercase, all one word, all plotted out at Outlook.com. Or catch me on Twitter. Twitter. At all plotted out. But yeah... Season 9 continues apace, as they say. Thank you for joining me. I hope you will join me again soon. But until next time, stay safe, stay well, stay tolerant, and stay puffed. I've only just realised it's not actually a real company. You know, there's all sorts of things in America that look like they're made up. I, I don't know, you know, big boy. Might as well have been made up. And it's already in Austin Bowers, but stay puffed. If you take nothing else away from this episode, don't make it that. Ta-ra. Maybe the later books are slightly more realistic than I gave them credit for. <laughs> <laughs>